History of the Christian Church. We are studying the, the way the church has come to be. And uh, hope you hope you've seen along the way that uh, not much has changed. People have not changed a whole lot. We still argue just about anything. And uh, uh, God has always worked through it. He has no choice. God can only, this is all he's given. We are all he's given. He has to work with us. It's not like you're going to find any better people. People are, are uh, messed up to some extent, to a, to a large extent, I say some extent. With that, let's open the word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for gathering for the time tonight. Pray for those who are not here and those who are at uh, youth camp this week. Ask you for their, your blessing upon them, safety, and that the gospel would be preached. For those kids who are there who know little about Christ or have been uh, perhaps forced to go, may this be a transforming week in their lives that they come to know Christ. As we reflect tonight on the history of the church, um, what, uh, uh, what we see from the past, Lord, uh, speak to us, move us. Even though we're not in the inspired scriptures, we're looking at the evolution of the church. Uh, may we leave here having worshipped and a little bit better than when we came in. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to go through some big wigs tonight. A lot of names, names you may know. You may be familiar, very familiar with all these names. Um, there's a lot that goes behind each name, but these are powerful names within the history of the church. Next week, we'll look at the, the unfolding of the Trinity and how the doctrine of the Trinity unfolded through lots of other arguing and, and councils that came about. But uh, uh, tonight, let's take a look. Um, in the aftermath, uh, persecution in the aftermath, what we looked at last week, we've got the aftermath of persecution. Christians are being persecuted. And remember, I told you, it's not a steady um, after Christ ascended into heaven that we're just completely persecuted all the way across the, uh, the way, where every Christian is in every city. That's not the case at all. It just, there were pockets of persecution here and there, now and then. Uh, there was a lot of rest. Uh, AD 247 was the 1,000th birthday of the city of Rome. How many of you have, have ever read the little tale of the, of the beginning of Rome? Uh, it's dated back to 753. What did you say, Carolyn? Remus and Romulus, twin brothers who were raised by she-wolf, and they were nourished by she-wolf, and uh, Remus and Romulus got in a fight one day. Romulus won. He founded the city of Rome. There it is. And so uh, uh, it dates back, and so our dating, or the dating even in those days, was dating upon, uh, based on the founding of Rome, which is dated to us around 753 B.C. So in the year AD 247, this was the 1,000th birthday of the city of Rome. Since the celebrations focused on Roman gods and goddesses, Christians refused to participate in these festivities. So soon after the celebration, a plague came in, and of course, uh, if you want to blame someone, you always have to blame someone. It had to be the Christians who would not offer incense to the gods and goddesses. So hoping to regain the gods' good favor, Emperor Decius launched an empire-wide persecution of Christians in AD 250. It was one of the worst that was launched. You know what? I need to put this on the uh, so that I can get my animations, right? That's what you were going to say, right, Mark? It really bothers you that, that those great animations are not appearing. Anyone without a sacrifice certificate, quote-unquote, granted by sacrificing to a pagan god could be imprisoned. You had to have that. You know, you had to have a, uh, an exemption not to offer incense to the gods. Origin of Alexandria, whom unfortunately I have skipped over and not done a study on him in our class up to this point. I will eventually. He had a strange way of interpreting the Bible, and uh, 
uh, a way that many interpret it today. But he was, he was a powerhouse in those days, uh, had some strange views, as I said, but uh, he was martyred uh, at this point. Uh, this particular persecution ended with Decius's death in 251, so it didn't last long, 250 to 251-ish. The effects of it, however, lasted for decades of this persecution. During the persecution, many church members sacrificed to the Roman gods. And why would you sacrifice to the Roman gods? Spare your life. You know, this is, God doesn't want me to die. I've got a family to take care of. Or I'm a pastor of a church. God wants me to preach to the church. I'll just say what they want me to say. Pour out a little incense. God's fine with that, right? Well, this angered a lot of Christians. Um, others obtained fake sacrifice certificates. We could say that today. Some, I had more people ask me today, is it okay to have that fake card for your COVID? Uh, no, it's not. But, uh, you know, if you're okay with it, or whatever. Still others fled and hid from persecution, which that's just normal. You know, I'm going to be killed or martyred. You know, it's, I think it's a sin. I think it's wrong to run in, to, as Ignatius did. We saw him. Is to run in and say, persecute me, shoot me, kill me. I want to die. There's something cuckoo about that. You like what, what Connie was doing back there. Uh, it's not, you run from it. Cyprian did that and finally was persecuted to the point of death. But to others like Ignatius ran to it. Please, I want to die this way. I want to be inside the lion's digestive system and spewed out. That's what he wanted. I want to be found in the teeth of these lines. That's to him, that's what it meant to be a Christian. So what about the church members who obtained these false certificates? Well, Cyprian said, when this is a review, we looked at this in the past. Cyprian said he was a, um, a pastor, a bishop in Alexandria. He said these church members should be given a second chance. Readmit them to the church after they show the authenticity of their repentance through prayer and fasting. So he didn't just say, yeah, let them all in. No big deal. Let them show repentance. People make mistakes. Not all Christians are as firm in their faith. You recognize that. Not everyone should be expected to make the, the boldest proclamations, uh, even today, especially today. I mean, we are, compared to the folks of yesteryear, you should see we are soft, are we not? Persecution to us is that somebody gives us a bad review on Google or something. They hurt our feelings. Donatus, however, said these church members were never true believers. Furthermore, if one of them had been a pastor, every baptism or ordination that they ever performed after that pastor, after that, was invalid because that pastor was invalid. So this is a picture of uh, one of the last persecutors. Uh, uh, his name was Galerius in the 4th century, and that's the 300s. Emperor Galerius recognized that despite harsh persecution, most Christians still refused to, first to worship the gods. He and Diocletian, Emperor Diocletian, they, uh, they reigned side by side. They thus inaugurated perhaps the worst Christian persecution up to that time, killing Christians who would not offer incense to the Roman gods. They burned scriptures and they burned churches. In fact, Diocletian's wife and daughter were Christians. They had to um, offer incense to the gods to save their own lives. Uh, it was a mess. Diocletian got sick at some point, retired around 304 from being emperor and Galerius on his deathbed in AD 311 declared that it was indeed legal for Christians to worship Jesus alone, quote, as long as they don't disturb the public order. Uh, he had some bit of uh, repentance in him. Now, as we see Constantine, Constantine is going to be one of, the, one of the five most important people in the history of the church. You have to know who this guy was, what he did. But his rise to power... Uh, fits in the middle of Galerius and, and uh, Diocletian and a few others. So at the time, 
you've got Augustus. Uh, the Augustus was the head honcho. That was the emperor of the kingdom. Diocletian was the emperor. E stands for East. So he's in the East in the Byzantium Empire. That would be modern Istanbul in Turkey. Maximian was emperor in the West. Uh, that would be Rome. Uh, they, had, they appointed second-hand men or second men underneath them, and they called them Caesars. Galerius was uh, under Diocletian in the East, and Constantius, who was the father of Constantine, was the Caesar under the Augustus in the West. You with me? Barely. Barely. I'm staying. Hang in there, Linda. Constantius, okay, the emperor, the, I should say the Caesar in the West, and Galerius later moved from Caesars to Augustus. They became, uh, they co-reigned in the East and the West. And even though it seems like a long way away, the empire is really just too small for two emperors. But they're trying to do it. They're trying to keep order in the East and the West. Constantius died. That's Constantine's father. So his son Constantine assumed power as Augustus in the West in Rome. Now he started off, he's over in Gaul and France, which would be France, and in the uh, part of England uh, where he was a commander. He makes his way down to the south and uh, he takes over as full emperor. His rise was contested by Maxentius, who is the son of Maximian, look at the first bullet point. Maximian was the emperor in the west, and his son was Maxentius. In fact, Constantine's dad was Constantius. Constantine had a son named Constans, and his second son was Constantine the second. So if you just put C-O-N-S-T period, you get who these people are. Um, Constantine's rise contested by Maxentius, who was the son of Maximian. And there was a civil war between Constantine and Maxentius. In other words, as Constantine rose to power in the West, the guy in the East didn't like it. War. Constantine, against all odds, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge outside of Rome, October 28th, A.D. 312, ensued. Uh, odds are completely against Constantine, uh, but he had a vision. And in the name of Christ, he defeated Maxentius on the Milvian Bridge, or at the Milvian Bridge right there in uh, Rome, or in Milan, near Milan. This is, the, the, this is what he records. Uh, about noon, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens, above the sun, and bearing the inscription, conquer by this, or in this sign, conquer. At this sight, he was struck with amazement, and his whole army also. This is, if you know your Greek letters, it's two letters. The, the X is a key. And the, what looks like a P is a row, so it's a key row. Uh, while he continued, the quote goes on, to ponder its meaning, and this is Eusebius writing, who is a historian. While he continued, that is Constantine, to ponder its meaning, night suddenly came upon. Then in his sleep, the Christ appeared to him with the same sign and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign and use it as a safeguard in all his engagements with his enemies. So, what we have here and what's important is Constantine, one of these Roman emperors, is having a vision, a real vision, it was real to him, of Jesus Christ in this sign. He actually has all of his soldiers uh, imprint this sign on their shields, and it intimidates Maxentius' army, uh, it overwhelms them in a sense, and he wins this battle. So he is going to give glory to Christ, and his, his life is very interesting. Uh, the question will always be asked until we get to heaven. Is Constantine in heaven? 
Um, Constantine appears to be one of the, what we would say, a modern Christian, quote-unquote Christian. Uh, Christian people who think that God is out for their well-being. Um, Constantine believed, he saw this vision, and God was for him to do whatever he wanted to do, was going to bless whatever he's going to do. We do that. I thought I did that for a time at this church, thinking that this church was my baby. This is what I want to do. God, help me. Give me this. Give me this. I need that, Lord. And God's going, hey, wait a minute. My church. And he had to show me at some point, is my church, Lance. You're just a servant here. Um, Constantine never got that, that rattling of the cage. And so, uh, in fact... Um, he wasn't even baptized until his deathbed. Back then, uh, especially if you're emperor, you didn't get baptized till late in your life because once you're baptized, you can't sin anymore. And Constantine, being emperor, knew he had many people to slay. Now, if you want to make sure that all of your sins are washed away, you want to get in as many murders as you can, rub some people out that get in your way, until, and then you get baptized if you get to know when you're going to die, which he did. It all kind of fell in place for him, and he's baptized at the end of his life. Um, but his whole life goes around. He, he never had a pastor. He would submit to no bishops. Mind you, he came to Christ in a vision. He didn't read scripture. Um, he uh, um, called himself the bishop of bishops. So again, if you have no pastor, no one's teaching you. You're the top dog. You're untouchable. Uh, that's who he was. That's what he did. And so he's an interesting story. Did some good things and did some very questionable things. But Eusebius, in fact, Eusebius uh, in his ecclesiastical history is where half of what I get, half of what any church historian knows comes from Eusebius, Eusebius of Caesarea. We'll meet another guy named Eusebius of Nicomedia, who is to be distinguished from him very staunchly. Yeah, Mark. Was Constantine a believer in Christ prior to this vision? No. No, he was a pagan uh, Roman emperor who worshipped the gods. Now, you're thinking more of, of uh, some of the others that we know their moms. Now, his mom was Helena, right? Uh, and, and Helena was more about the, the task after he came to Christ, or after he came, let me put it in quotes, air quotes, got to do the air quotes. Um, she went around designating places, certain places in the Holy Land that this has happened here, this happened there. Oh, look, that piece of wood over there, that's a piece of Jesus' cross. So I don't think she had any place in his conversion but she sure seized upon his conversion. You're thinking of Augustine's mom, Monica, who prayed for him until such a time as he came to know Christ. Well, even though my mic cuts out from time to time, Joe, you have any great theories back there? All right, there you go. Even though it cuts off in here, it apparently doesn't cut off in the back. So, uh, so Constantine has this vision. He goes forth. He wins victory. He is not the sole uh, uh, emperor in the empire. There's still a guy in the east named Licinius. And Licinius and he will, will co, uh, be co-Augusti in the, in the empire until 324 when um, Constantine finally defeats him. But in the Edict of Milan, Milan being Milan, Italy, in AD 313, uh, Constantine says this, Our purpose is to allow Christians to worship as they desire, that whatever divinity lives in the heavens will be kind to us. Now, does that sound like a guy that came to know Christ? Whatever divinity lives in the heavens, he'll be kind to us. We'll make sure that he's happy. Because he went forth and conquered in this, uh, under that sign. He then granted favors to church bishops, which church bishops are going to love that. Who wouldn't? I mean, if I'm a church bishop, I'm getting favor from the ruler of the world. So now the world has gone from a place where Christians suffer intensely with their own lives to it's now being completely legal. 
The world changed in an instant. The Edict of Milan in 313, where persecution was outlawed, only baptism is needed for membership. That's the way it is in many churches today still. You know, my understanding of some of the big churches here in town and in and around Houston, especially in the big one of the Woodlands, is who wants to be baptized? Raise your hand. This happens in many churches. At the end of the church, you will line up and we will baptize you sometime next week or this evening. No counseling. I put all baptizees through intense counseling. I want your testimony. I want to know what you think it means. No, let's just baptize them. Mark them as members of the church. I know this because I have a nephew that was baptized in one of these ridiculous churches uh, that's on TV that interrupts every Astros game with one of their ridiculous commercials. Uh, And I told my sister, I said, there's no way that boy's a Christian. She quit speaking to me. She was furious with me. A few years later, he comes to camp with us here, and we shared the gospel with him, and he heard it for the first time. Of course, he had already been baptized. But this is what's happening now in the empire. The only way that you need to enter into the church now that it's legal is just be baptized. Have some water thrown on you. The Lord's Day in AD 324 becomes a holy day, uh, Sunday. Um, Had God's kingdom come. It It sure felt like it. The ruler of the world, the emperor, is a Christian. Uh, It's outlawed to persecute us. The kingdom of God is here. Bishops have have power and authority and privilege. Uh, Judicial authority was given to bishops. They're even now reigning. They're not just serving. These guys are powerful government officials in some cases. Conflict then ensued between the church and the state because there is no difference between church and state between the emperor and the bishop. So if the bishop is now given this, and the bishop knows the Bible, and the emperor has a different view, who wins the day? You see that play out over the course of uh, at least a thousand years. Imperial revenue began to subsidize the church. How bad is that? When the state is giving money to the church, last thing you want. Last thing you want is for the state to be able to subsidize the church, because now who owns church? There you go. Don't ever, if you're in church business, don't ever take a handout from the state, no matter what. Even if they offer thousands and thousands of dollars for COVID relief, just say, no thanks. Don't want it, don't need it. No persecution or martyrdom anymore, that's gone. Weekly Eucharist becomes central to worship. Just go get baptized, you're in, and then take this piece of bread and drink this cup of juice, and uh, you're in. And people think that today. Just note that not much has changed. People go to churches today, they walk to the front. Have you been to a church where the, the Lord's Supper is served every week and never explained? Yes. You just go in, you grab it, what am I doing? I don't know. Everybody else is doing it. Looks good, feels good. Lord's Supper, I must be a Christian now. Was then, happens today. Those who stayed in the mainstream were involved in intellectual activity. So in other words, if you stayed within the church, you didn't go out into the deserts, as some of them did. Uh, They became involved in intellectual activity. So the church is growing intellectually. Worship moved from houses, sometimes undercover, to cemeteries. How'd you like to have worship in a cemetery? And then it moved to buildings. Bishops began wearing lavish clothing and using incense in respect to the emperor. Well, they've been... Bumped up a notch or two. So some bishop somewhere along the way said, you know what? As high as I am, I should wear some nicer clothes. I should be addressed as your worshipfulness, your highness. Walk around with one of those silly incense things at the Greek Orthodox Church. You ever wonder, what are they doing? 
It's, it's like when they go to seminary and they come out, here, here's your incense thing. Go around walking that silly thing around like that means anything. Pardon my sarcasm. I'm just, I just loathe what was then, continues today, and people buy it. Church of the Nativity built in Bethlehem. Why? Because as Bill said earlier, Helena, who was Constantine's mom, decided in Bethlehem, this is the place where Jesus was born. She might have been right. And if you go to Israel and you go to Bethlehem, as we have been, you can go to a location that Helena said, this is where he was born. It's just kind of a little, looks like a fireplace. A little pit with some, uh, some uh, uh, tiles around it. I didn't even let our group go in. Did we? I didn't. Julie? No. We went to Bill and I said, do you guys, you don't need to see it. It's just a little fireplace. You're not going to go there and go, wow, Jesus was born here. This is, this is where all the animals were. It's where the little drummer boy sat over here. <laughs> she chose that place. That became the place. And when, when there's some holy place sited in the Holy Land, you build a church on top of it, and it just becomes the next church you visit. Gestures of respect evolve for the emperor. Bowing, kneeling, whatever it might be. These people are no longer servants. They are the high and mighty. Choirs developed. You want to know where choirs came from? There it was. Respectful remembrance of the martyrs began. Because as they're meeting in the catacombs, in the graveyards, they began to revere and honor those saints who had gone before them, especially those that had died for their faith. And then they began to pray to them and have this undue respect for them, praying to dead people. So the bishops in the east and the west, you've got Rome in the west, and uh, uh, you've got some major churches in Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Ephesus. Um, this is its line of demarcation from the Latin-speaking church in the West and the Greek-speaking church in the East. That's hence the Greek Orthodox Church, um, distinguished from the Latin-speaking Western Church. Um, Constantine moved the empire from Rome to Constantinople, defeated Licinius. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, he was done, and now he takes over as the sole emperor of the empire, encased there by the green uh, a bishop of Rome is now alone in the West. So you've got bishops are still the pastors, as you know, pastor of Rome. It's the largest, most influential church. So uh, emperor moves over to the East in modern Istanbul, Turkey, and the church in Rome. So you've got religion in the West and muscle and power in the East, in the new capital. The Eastern part of the Roman Empire continued. Eastern Orthodox Church was birthed from it. Now, if you've ever heard of Arius, uh, you've heard of Arianism. If you've ever had someone knock on your door and they are called Jehovah's Witnesses from the Watchtower Society, this is the modern equivalent to the rise of Arianism. So Arius was a presbyter, uh, an old man. He was tall and lean. Uh, and uh, that, that's what we know about him. He was apparently a very good preacher, but he had some strange views about who Jesus was. Uh, Arius was a presbyter in Alexandria, Egypt. He, he, was, uh, he was opposed by his own bishop in, in, Alex, in Alexandria, named Alexander, saying that Jesus, he did not maintain that the doctrine of God, that God is one. God is not one. Well, that should cause some difficulty with anyone who thinks that God is one, especially knowing the scripture, Deuteronomy 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, what? The Lord our God is one. He didn't believe that. He said that there was a time when Jesus was not. That Jesus is a different substance from God, and there's two little words. The whole thing revolves around a diphthong. 
Now, you grammarians know what a diphthong is. It's not, it's not a, uh, some, one guy said, you know, you're calling people names. Well, I do call people names, but diphthong is not one of them. <laughs> you, you diphthong. It, it would be good, but uh, <laughs> it's a diphthong. You know what they are, maybe without knowing the name, but uh, heteroisios, hetero, heteroisios, not heterousios. Heteroisios means of similar substance. Jesus, in other words, is of similar substance to God, whereas Heterousios means he is of the same substance as God. So everything hinges on this diphthong. And they would say that God made everything else through Jesus. Now turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 1, I should say. Yeah, those of you who didn't think you need to bring your Bible, shame on you. Colossians chapter 1. Yeah. All right, you can take out you, you can take out your phone. Find your map. No, I got my, my Bible. <laughs> I know it. I get it. No, I get it. That's why you can't. It, it's okay in here. It's legal. <laughs> Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen. That's okay, Connie. Well, thank you for not doing that. Now, if you get a Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door, I'm reading this for this for this cause. This is what God's holy. Inerrant word tells us about Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says this. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Think about that. By him all things were created. That means that Jesus existed before he was born. Dating back to Genesis chapter 1. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and you want to tell them that, and they open their Bible, here's what their Bible says. For by him all other things were created. Their Bible says other, and it's in brackets. All other things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. That's what their Bible says. But it, it is in, in brackets in their Bible, and you can show them. But their, their view is that, no, he could not have done that. Uh, he created all other things, but God is created in the beginning, and Jesus isn't God. That's who Arius was. And that's now that the church has come into being, and I say it's come into being, it's now become safe to be in the church. Satan steps in once again. Through a bishop, he wasn't actually a bishop, he was a presbyter. Arius wasn't quite to the role, to the, had not ascended to bishop. So with the rise of Arius, you see right there, Isnik is, is a modern, or Nicaea is modern Isnik. Uh, the followers of Arius sang in the streets. They had songs for this. There was a time when the sun did not exist. Arius' detractors responded with the glory of Patri, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. For peace, Constantine convened a council, the city of Nicaea. So he wanted this, he wanted peace in the empire. He's now ruler of the world. And let's have peace. The church is at, at odds. Let's all gather at Nicaea for a nice uh, cup of coffee and some donuts and iron this out. Invited, I'm told, up to 2,000 bishops, 300 showed up, 300 or so. You've got the Council of Nicaea right there in uh, be modern Turkey, as I showed you. 
Uh, in AD 325, this council convenes. They took a little Polaroid of it over there to the left. More than 300 bishops made their way to Nicaea. Many elders and deacons, including really the main defender of truth in there was a man named Athanasius, who was a deacon. He was also present. He was from Alexandria. This is going to be the fireball of the Council of Nicaea. On July the 4th, A.D. 325, Constantine called the council to order, declaring himself a bishop and an apostle. How convenient. First ecumenical council since Acts chapter 15, where the church comes together, called together, we need to discuss an issue. It's the first one since Acts 15. Discussion of Arianism is what unfolded primarily. There were discussions about other things. Uh, it was defined father and son as homoousios. And I put the ooh there because uh, it's really not double O, but it's O-U. It sounds like ooh. It's of the same substance of God as God. Jesus is the same substance. He's co-eternal. He's co-substantial. He's co-equal. That Jesus is not under God. Jesus is God. To have any other view of Jesus is to have another God. And there is only one God, as we know. This particular council condemned Arius and Arianism. The interesting thing about Arius is that he couldn't be there. He was just a presbyter. And so he apparently could not be there. He was invited. The bishops were there. Uh, deacons could be there, which is why Athanasius was. Uh, and so the man who spoke in Arius' place was a man named Eusebius of Nicomedia. Not Eusebius of Caesarea, whom we get our church history from, but Eusebius of Nicomedia. And it is said that Eusebius of Nicomedia thought that he could make a statement or two and everyone would go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Statement or two about Jesus not being co-eternal with the Father. And he was stunned and amazed when the large majority of the council turned on him and said, no, they were very defensive of Jesus being God. Uh, and at the end of the Council of Nicaea, this condemned Arius and Arianism. You'd think it'd all go away from that point. The key theologian here was Athanasius who made the greatest arguments. When Arius stated that Jesus had not existed eternally, but two bishops, all but two bishops agreed that this contradicted scripture. So he had two people on his side. The Creed of Nicaea responded to Arius' heresy. And here's what it says. This is what they put together after, uh, the, creed, after the, the council met. The Creed, we believe in one God. The Father, Almighty Creator of all things, visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, begotten from the Father, uniquely begotten from the Father's essence, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not created, of one essence with the Father. So this is going in much more detail than the Apostles' Creed, which was set out to, to disregard uh, Gnosticism and Marcion. This is much more specific. In fact, it said that, that um, uh, Athanasius, when it was said that he was trying to explain who God, who Jesus was, that someone said, are you saying that, uh, and he went over to this piece of marble. He said, are you saying that, that God, if God is this marble, that Jesus is a chip off this block? And Athanasius said, no, Jesus is that block. That's how adamant he was. He was called uh, Oh, I forgot what he's called, but I have it here on the next one. No, it's, it's eluding me. As the creed goes on, through him, that is Christ, all things were made in heaven and earth for us humans and for our salvation. He came down and was made flesh, was made human, suffered and rose again the third day. He ascended into heaven and is coming to judge the living and the dead. 
We believe in the Holy Spirit. The universal apostolic church curses all who say that there was a time when he was not. And before he was begotten, he was not. And he came out of nothing. Or those who pretend God's son is of another substance or essence or created or variable or changeable. That leaves nothing to doubt. We curse anyone who says otherwise. Creed of Nicaea. Now the Creed of Nicaea is going to be, it's going to come under um, attack again, and they're going to have another council, Council of Constantinople in 381. There's going to be the Council of Ephesus in 451. All these councils are, are going through and defining not only Jesus and his eternality, but the Holy Spirit, the Trinity itself. So the Trinity you can see very early on in the church, as the scriptures come to be, as people recognize the scriptures for what they were, what they are, you can see that in the history of the church, the evolution of it, not at all, the evolution of it has that uh, the first thing to deal with was the Trinity. And over, over time, in fact, you'll see this, you've got the Trinity. Scriptures were, were down. That really wasn't even a discussion, but you've got the Trinity. Later on, when the Reformation comes about, what's the main issue of the Reformation? Salvation. So that's called soteriology. And then after soteriology, as the Bible was printed and more people got it in their hands, people began to talk about ecclesiology. And then people began to talk about eschatology. Uh, in the 1800s, under John Nelson Darby, who was uh, the mentor of a guy named Cyrus Schofield, who was the mentor of one of my heroes, Charles Ryrie, who was one of the, the great professors at Dallas Seminary. So you can see the evolution, the church history of the doctrines of the faith as they unfold. Here it's the Trinity. Here it's the, the eternality of Christ. So after the Council of Nicaea, everyone goes home, patting each other on the back, right? Not Arius. He was denounced and exiled. Unfortunately, he didn't stop preaching. Constantine demanded that his writings be burned, but they weren't. Arianism was forbidden, yet it continued. Eusebius of Caesarea rises as a scholar at that time. Uh, he was then, then became a bishop, and he wrote, like I said earlier, half of what we know about church history. So Arianism was forbidden. Interestingly, we're not quite sure if, if Eusebius of Caesarea teetered with it. We know he did. We're not quite sure that if he was a full all-out Arian. And even though um, Constantine condemned it here, later on Constantine welcomed it back into the empire and may have become one himself. I know. Interesting. But you should expect that from someone who's made himself an apostle, who set himself above all other teachers, who thinks he's the, the, uh, the cherry on top of, uh, of whatever it might be. I, Cheryl's always telling me to come up with some better um, you know, metaphors and whatever. So I'm just one-trick pony, I guess. Um, but this guy wasn't quite sure. So uh, you say, you might look at that and say, oh, Christians are shaky. Not the ones that read the Bible. The ones that read and know the Bible are not shaky. If you don't read and know the Bible, you will be shaky. You'll say, well, I don't know about that. I don't know, I don't know if I believe that or I understand that or I don't like that. If you know God's Word, you can stand the test anything that comes around. But you've got to know it. And here I'm hammering this in a church, and everybody should be going, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's like singing happy birthday at a birthday party. But it's not, is it? People today are not encouraged in the churches to read their Bibles. And you want to know why? Because 90% of the pastors never read it either. You think I'm exaggerating? Just go do your own sociological research. Just go find you 20 pastors around. Ask them, have you ever read the Bible cover to cover? Even once. See what you get. Athanasius, called the Black Dwarf. He was a black man. Deacon of Alexandria from Egypt. 
Um, probably small, I'm guessing, from the dwarf thing. But you got to like that, you know. Power to the short guy, you know. <laughs> yeah, with a Napoleon complex, for sure. <laughs> he was um, described as fiery, unshakable convictions, believed Christ's eternality and, and incarnation were necessary for salvation, as anyone should. If you don't believe that about Christ, you are, you've made up another Christ, because that's what the Bible gives us about Christ. He refused to restore Arius to his place as a, uh, as a presbyter and uh, had to flee to the desert. In fact, Athanasius was a pastor and had to be exiled at least four times, perhaps five times. It's like me being at a church and, and you not liking my doctrine. Get out of here. And then you call me. Come on back. Get out of here. Come on back. Over and over. Exiled four times under four emperors. Constantine himself exiled him. His son, Constantius. Uh, Julian and Valens, uh, each one, you get a new reigning emperor and they stand, uh, speak out against him. He has to leave and then he comes back. Struggled for the faith, yet he remained faithful. That's why he's a hero. Uh, this is one of the great heroes of our faith. Constantine is normally remembered, and he should be in the history of the world, but as one of the great men of all time is Athanasius, standing up when others might not have. He died before the Council of Constantinople when the creed was given in 381, which exonerated much of what he said. So now without the ability to be persecuted, unless you want to follow Arius, uh, what's the best way to suffer for Christ? Move to the desert. Uh, there's no way to suffer other than to move to the desert, and many did. You've heard of these desert monks, the desert fathers, Here's where they came about. After decades of persecution, now there no longer seemed to be any possibility of persecution or martyrdom. So we'll go suffer somewhere else. Many Christians, longing for a more demanding faith, retreated to the deserts to live alone. Many of them that were wealthy sold their fortunes and went out to live. Some of them lived on pedestals. You ever hear some of these living on pedestals? They'd live on a little pedestal. They'd make a pedestal, live there. One would live on one, and the, another one would come along and build one a little bit higher. And then build a little bit higher. And then they would find old uh, pillars in, in broken cities and they would climb to the top and live up there. And they would live up there trying to beat the guys down there. Oh, you live on a pedestal down there. I'm way up here. Sin will catch you anywhere, anywhere you go. No matter what you're trying to do. They lived in extreme poverty, eating only enough to stay alive. They were filthy, no doubt. These men and women became known as monks and nuns from Latin terms that means to be alone. Others of them, some of them were completely alone. Others were alone together, and others of them built monasteries, and they were alone within the monastery and the nunneries. Monasticism started in Egypt, then it moved to North Africa as a pious movement away from the world in pursuit of holiness. We're not, being, we're not suffering for being Christians anymore. Let's go suffer uh, without having anything. It was a new way to live out the gospel, an ascetic lifestyle of simplicity and devotion to God. Most famous was a man named St. Anthony who lived in Egypt and moved there prior to 270, which means he was there prior to the Edict of Milan when Christians were still under fire, but he still went out there in 270. Uh, and he read the, the parable in 1822 where the, the, the man is told, leave all, if you want to follow me, Jesus said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. He took that seriously. He was known to be filthy. Uh, we, only, we know everything we know about Anthony was written to us by Athanasius, given to us by Athanasius. The life of Anthony. He formed a monastic community. A brilliant man. People went out to him to be fed. 
while they gave him bread, he fed them the word of God. And he was, interestingly, um, illiterate. John Chrysostom, which means the golden-mouthed, um, died in 407. He was born in Antioch. Uh, he studied to be a lawyer, and he was a monk for 10 years. He was ordained as a deacon in 381 and bishop of Constantinople in 398. That's, those are big, high regards. This is one of the great preachers of all time, we're told. He was a literal, expository preacher and a premillennialist. Power to John Chrysostom. <laughs> Dallas Theological Seminary theologian before it existed. He attacked the vices of the congregation, um, which uh, the vices had become numerous because they could do anything they wanted. They were untouchables. He criticized Eudoxia, was the wife of Theodosius II, and you criticize the wife of the emperor, uh, you're either crazy or uh, you are just uh, convicted, and you're probably going to die as a result. He was exiled on bogus charges and cast out. Here's what he said. He asked, is it not disgraceful to clothe our walls with marble, vainly to no end, and to see Christ going about naked? What does your house profit you, O man? For will you take it with you when you depart? We build houses so that we may have a habitation, not that we may make an ambitious display. What is beyond our needs is superfluous and useless. Put on a sandal that is larger than your foot, and you will not endure it, for it is a hindrance to the step. Thus also a house larger than necessity requires is an impediment to your progress toward heaven. In other words, you people with big houses, shame on you. He says, there are chariot races and satanic spectacles in the Hippodrome, and our congregation is shrinking. You're all going to the, all the, the great, wonderful things out there, and you're not coming to church? It is on this account, and because I feared and anticipated the negligence which comes from ease and security, that I exhorted you and encouraged you in love not to inflict on yourselves the outrage which comes from Satan's spectacles. As it seems, no prophet came to you from this exhortation. See how some who heard my previous instruction have today rushed away. That's like saying, look, you got tickets to the Texans game on Sunday? What kind of a Christian are you? I have people even today say, hey, I got tickets. I'm going to Texas. What are you telling me for? I, I don't care. I'm not here to condemn you, but he would have. You get tickets to the Texans game? That's pretty cool. I mean, all right, go. I, I don't get to go. Think about me. I got to work. I got to be here. But if you want to go, if your conscience lets you go, you go on and go. Hey. <laughs> now, if it's the Dallas Cowboys, that is God's team. That's a worship service. Because you will be martyred. So what you see is this guy speaking out boldly about the excesses then. Do we see the same thing now? Yes. Jerome, 331 to 420. It's a young Roman scholar who rejected the life of Rome to live in a cave in the desert near Antioch. So he lived in Rome. This man, uh, one, <laughs> one pastor Cheryl and I at church used to go to, love him. He said he liked sex and he liked lots of it. So this is going, it's just strange, but, but it's true. He was, uh, he was given to what he, his sensual desires. And you know how he got over his sexual problem? <laughs> Actually, when he tried to live in a cave, it didn't work. And he, he, his testimony is, I'm, I'm filthy, I'm, I'm starving, and that's all I think about is the lust of the flesh. No, we, there was a big joke about that at Dallas Seminary. The way he got over it was he learned Hebrew. 
So all Hebrew, everyone who learns Hebrew is saying, well, that should get over uh, any problems that, uh, that you might have sexually speaking. Anyway, that's what he did. And oddly, he traveled with women for the rest of his life. Traveled with women. They never touched, but they were companions. Um, but he was a great scholar and one of the great hitters in the lineup. He says this, Some unmarried Christian women prevent conception by the help of potions, murdering human beings before they are conceived. He's talking about birth control. Others, when they find themselves with child as a result of sin, secure abortion with drugs. Yet it is these who say, to the pure, all things are pure. My conscience is sufficient guide for me. Whew. Guy did not mince words. Um, that's where the Roman Catholic Church gets the uh, no, uh, uh, no, no ability or no freedom for, uh, for contraception. So he moved back to Rome and he served under Pope Damasus at the time because uh, living in the cave did not suit him. He became a spiritual advisor to a group of wealthy ascetic women in Rome. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, he wrote what's, what we know as the Latin Vulgate. If you grew up Catholic, you know all about the Latin Vulgate. There were lots of Latin versions of the Bible. Damasus, the Pope of the day, said, uh, and by the way, Pope just means Papa. Papa. The Papa in uh, uh, Rome, the, the, the pastor, the bishop, saw, his, saw Jerome's great learning and said, I want you to put one standard text together, the Latin Vulgate. So he did. He lived in the desert for two years before he realized he was not called to live alone. When he returned to Rome, the bishop asked him to create a reliable Latin Bible. An old picture of one. Jerome assigned the task of translating the Bible uh, at the age of 50. There was a need for a Latin edition to complement to the common language of the West. And then in the West... They spoke Latin. Um, and that's why if you're a, an Orthodox Catholic today, you still go to the Mass, which is spoken in Latin. That's the language of the Roman Empire. It took roughly 10 years for him to complete. The Vulgate itself, the name, is derived from the Latin term that means vulgar. We use that for vulgar language. Actually, it just means common, common language. Just common words. Put a, a version of the Bible in the common language for the people. And so he did. Also responsible for establishing monasteries in and around Jerusalem, Jerome did. Uh, the Latin text that became, was finished in AD 405 became known as the Vulgate, or the Common Bible, as I said. For nearly 1,500 years, the Vulgate was the Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. Was and still is in many. Uh, that's where they go back, which is interesting today because, you know, today in the, in the, the real staunch Christians, you know, believe that the King James Bible, that's it. That's the Bible. That's the standardized Bible. We don't need any new Bibles. Those are, those are bad. And yet every new edition, including the Latin Vulgate, was, would have been considered bad when they're putting together this standardized text in 405 uh, compared to all the other Latin versions that were around at the day. Don't ever let anybody convince you that any other version of the King James Bible is, is, is bad. I mean, don't, don't ever fall for that. Uh, you've, if you've never run into a King James-only person, you don't know what you're missing. And, and I promise you, you are better off talking to that wall than you are those people. You'd get further. There was a wealthy widow named Marcella who financed Jerome's translation of the Vulgate. Jerome, Marcella, and a friend named Paula embraced extreme self-denial. Like I said, he traveled with these women, even to the point of refusing, refusing ever to bathe. Of course, that would also help with the attraction problem. Uh, refusing to ever bathe. Jerome again deserted Rome, this time for Bethlehem. Yes, Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Where he started a monastery and lived there until he died at age 89. At this point, Paula had already died. He was most fond of Paula and her daughter. 
uh, who died a year before he did. So a long, long age back in those days of living uh, the kind of filthy life. So what you see here is this unfold. Here's how the Bible itself. We say when we talk about the Old Testament, we talk about the old the Genesis through Malachi. is written in Hebrew originally. Moses wrote the first five books in 1500 B.C. Malachi would have finished his around 430 B.C. And so that's where you've got the Old Testament. That's what our Bible is. The Apocrypha, we talked about that a little bit last week. It was written in Greek. Uh, and these are stories and, uh, and even legends that were written between 30, 300 B.C. and 100 B.C. Many of them are good history. So the Apocrypha, written in Greek. The Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, is called the Septuagint. Uh, it means 70. And it was translated into Greek. So you take the Hebrew Old Testament and the Apocrypha, and you put it together and you get the Septuagint. So it comes together, Septuagint, includes both uh, the Hebrew and the Greek of the Apocrypha, and comes together as one Greek version. The New Testament we have is written in Greek between the years approximately A.D. 40 to A.D. 98, 97-ish. New Testament. When you have the Catholic Bible, if you're Catholic, then you take that version of the Old Testament and the Apocrypha, written in Greek, comes together with the New Testament. That's your Catholic Bible. So the Catholic Bible contains the Apocrypha. Nothing wrong with that. Apocrypha is good reading. It's not inspired scripture. Jerome did not believe it was inspired scripture, did not believe it belonged in the Bible itself. These are our true scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament comes together. We have it translated. We read it in English. Uh, the languages translate quite well in English. And when you get a new Bible, and all of them are called new, aren't they? New this, new that, new this, new that. Even the ones that were translated 50 years ago still called new something. But it's new from what was there. And so every time a new Bible comes out, uh, all of them are put together by good Hebrew and Greek scholars who are trying to bring the old language and update it. Just simply update it. Make sure the grammar, everything, I say everything, many things are tweaked to bring the grammar up to speed. Uh, in today's version, you know, where the Bible says uh, brothers in the Old Testament, you'll see some today, there's brothers, and they'll say, and sisters. Or brethren, it's implied that it's talking to women as well, so you might get that, and it's in italics, brothers and sisters in italics. And so together, we have the Protestant Bible, contains the Old and the New Testaments only. So there's our Bibles. I got five, ten minutes, you okay? You with me? Some of you are going, man, we need to, we need to end it now. No, we don't. We got to go. Got to move on. Do you remember, uh, you ever come across these three guys? These are called the Great Cappadocians. Nobody knows these guys. It's unfortunate. Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus. These were three of the great heavy hitters of our day in Christian history. Gregory of Nyssa, his brother Basil, and Gregory of Nazianzus supported the Creed of Nicaea in the Eastern Empire. So they're in the east, Cappadocia is right there. You see the little line pointing up to it in, in a mid to, to northern Turkey. And they're taking the findings and they're spreading them. Imagine that, these great theologians in modern Turkey, which is a Muslim country today. It was a bastion of Christianity in the day. Uh, Macrina, the sister of Basil and of Gregory, who were brothers, founded the first communities for nuns and monks in the Eastern Empire. Instead of retreating from the world, these communities served the people around them. So they're serving the people. Basil the Great, uh, father of the Eastern monasticism, his sister Macrina influenced all that he became, as I said earlier. He believed in community life as a way to serve. 
He sold what he had to feed the poor. He's one of those desert fathers. He became bishop in Caesarea, but he was opposed by the Arian Emperor Valens. So Arianism is still around, and he was opposed by them, and he opposed them. Opposed them. He encouraged prayer, service, and study. Good man. His response to Valens, who was an Arian, he said, All that I have that you can confiscate are these rags and a few books. Nor can you exile me, for wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. As to tortures, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ. And death would be a great boon to me, leading me sooner to God. What do you do with that guy? Prefect said, no one has ever spoken to me like that. I love when people say that. I've never been spoken to like that. Today's your day. Basil said, perhaps that's because you've never met a true bishop. He was. He walked into that one. That's like teeing that ball up and ready to be his struck. What's that? Mic drop. Drop the mic. There you go. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the three. He's a humble man with fire in his writings. So he, he was kind of sickly, but uh, he wrote harshly. He preferred silence, solitude, and anonymity. He married, and then he was widowed. He promoted monastic life to avoid family pains. No comment. <laughs> Fled the strife of the Arian controversy. He was an advisor to Emperor Theodosius. And then Gregory of Nazianzus, he was a son of Gregory and Nona, who was his mother, who led him and his father to Christ. Never hear about Nona. Uh, but some of these great men of the past, they had great mamas or great wives that made them what they were. He joined Basil at age 30 as a monk. He became bishop of Nazianzus against his will, as all the good ones did. He lost his family to death and his friendship to Basil before he was able to reconcile with him. And I put that in there because that happens with Christians. It happened then, it happens now. Uh, we have fallouts with each other. We all need to get over ourselves, forgive and move on, and be better for it. But they were having it back then. These great men of the faith were also at odds from time to time. He took a leading role against Arianism and suffered greatly for it before he had success. He died at age 60 as a faithful defender of truth. Ambrose. You ever heard of an Ambrosian chant? These were invented. These are like modern hymns invented by Ambrose. If you like John Wesley, um, or I should say Charles Wesley's hymns, Charles Wesley's hymns stem back from Ambrose, where Ambrose taught his people to sing these little phrases, these little uh, pithy, rhyming things um, way back when they were camping out in a church waiting to die. What are we going to do while we wait to die? Let's sing hymns. So Ambrose from Milan. He was the son of a Roman official, governor of northern Italy in Milan, and highly famed of the day. In 373, the bishop of Milan died. Ambrose was appointed, and he was not even baptized at the time. He was a brilliant man, a stern bishop with imperial support. That means the emperor was with him, and he also clashed with and confronted the Theodosius. So although he had imperial support, he clashed with the emperor. Uh, he became spiritual father and mentor to Augustine, who was the greatest mind of the West since the Apostle Paul. We still quote Augustine. Some pronounce him Augustine, so just, you know, I'm, it's the same person. And, uh, he had this conflict with Theodosius. This is wonderful. When the inhabitants of Thessalonica insulted the emperor, Ambrose announced that, the, that a great charioteer was going to be present at a stadium in Thessalonica. When the city gathered in the stadium, he had the gates closed and sent soldiers to massacre the civilians. Ambrose refused to let him take communion until he publicly repented of his sin. So here you see this 
this, uh, I said that Ambrose did this, is actually Theodosius that did this, to kill all these people. So you see this struggle between the emperor who wants to do what he wants to do, and now the, the bishop here saying, you do that, you can't be forgiven until you repent of it. Clashing. Who's going to come out on top? He wouldn't let him take communion until he publicly repented of his sin. Theodosius did repent, and he respected Ambrose until his death. And that's just to emphasize it. don't know why I did that. So now Ambrose is going to get in a conflict with Justina, the emperor's wife. This is going to be interesting. In 386, the emperor, which is Valentinian II, was a child. His mother, Justina, who was an Arian, she ruled the day. So you already see what's going to happen. She wanted Arians to have the right to worship in one of the basilicas of Milan. Not with Ambrose around, no sir. When Ambrose and his congregation occupied the building to prevent the Arians from using it, Justina sent barbarian Arian troops to drive them out. Go in there, slaughter them, kill them, we'll get rid of the problem. The barbarians refused to attack. A siege ensued, which Ambrose eventually won, and Justina leaves with her tail between her legs. Ambrose was a powerful, godly man who took no garbage from anyone, especially those whom he considered heretics. What do you think happened to Ambrose? Any of you ever been to Milan, Italy? You can see Ambrose today. There he is. That's where his body, he's encased. Uh, and it wasn't always like this. I, I, before you get to skeletal remains, your flesh has to rot. And that's kind of what happened along the way. He's never buried. Uh, if Ambrose knew this and saw this, of course, he would kill everyone who did it. Uh, or anybody who would come to his grave and worship it as some sort of a relic. Lance, who's that beside him? I don't know. I thought someone might ask me that. Chris... And I did not, and I saw it right before I did it tonight, and I thought, eh, I'm going to have to check that out, but I don't know. Don't know. But thank you for... Um, did someone change his clothes? They would kind of have to, wouldn't they? They look pretty nice and, and clean and uh, um, well-kept. I don't know. But there he is. That I don't know. Good question. I don't think that basilica would be, still be standing at this time, but I don't know. Is this Penny? when they started the concept of passing around the relics? It would have been one of the origins of it. I don't think that this was it, but it started a little bit earlier than this, but this would have been one of the, one of the contributing factors, for sure. Did they use him like a, a pagan god and worship him? In Not in the past, in the present. Yes, then and now, yeah. yeah. As people do. People love to have something to bow to, worship to, to, to offer incense to. And uh, Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your revelation. Thank you for the Bible that we possess. It tells us who you are. It tells us that Jesus is God and there is salvation in none other than him. That is something to worship you for. You have given that knowledge to us. May we never take it for granted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 